Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so we're continuing working our way through Lovecraft stories from the later part of 1920, the 1920s, um, and we're to the the last story, really. I mean, I still got to deal with the, the the very old folks, the Roman Dream story, but that's sort of uh, and the revisions that will come later. But as for the stories published under his name um, before the 1930s, uh, this is the last one. And I'm going to have to take a couple episodes, at least two, to get through this story. It's not incredibly long. It, it's, uh, is it his longest published work up to this point? I think that might be true. Of course, a uh, case of Charles Dexter Ward and the Dream Quest were longer, but they weren't published during his life. So I think this is his first big tale that the public saw, like the first one the readers of Weird Tales would see that would have been like a beefier story. A lot of his others were short, poesque, kind of short ones or or Dunstany style kind of dream quest things. But this is the the longest story that uh, readers uh, at the time following Lovecraft would have gotten. Um, and but it's not the last because he kind of goes long at this point. I mean, long, long by Lovecraft standards, He's, he gets long after this with the whisper in darkness and the shadow over Innsmouth at the mountains of madness. Uh, Shadow Out of Time. Those are the the big ones, right? Am I forgetting any? I think they're it. I think that's all of them. <coughs> Witch House. Witch House, I think, is fairly long, too. Um, this one... Uh, but again, the, by like modern standards of novels and even stories, these aren't incredibly long tales. I think that's... Uh, but they're dense. All these, all these stories are so dense. And they're, they're one of these... They're, I keep feeling... I keep having this deja vu feeling where... I'm like, wow, that story was so rich and sprawling and epic. And I come back and I download the audiobook for it, and it's like two hours or an hour and a half. And it's like, wow, I remembered it so much longer. And I think that's just because Lovecraft was so rich and dense and his writing was so packed with goodies. And this story, wow, this story is really a great example of that. Um, this story just works on so many levels. It's This is peak Lovecraft in a way, um, the, the Dunwich Horror. It, I can't think of um, other stories that I guess check so many boxes that I've been, check so many of the boxes I've been talking about. Like we have here a little bit of economics. We have the vernacular traditions. We have the racial theory, definitely here. We have the cosmic horror. We have knowledge. We have history. I mean, kind of all the boxes of this podcast are checked. And, and I'm sure I could say that about some other stories too, but I'm talking about this one now. So, wow, what a great story. And of course, one of the most popular, beloved stories by H.P. Lovecraft, uh, The Dunwich Horror. Um, so, you know, I'm not, th- I think most people listening to this probably have read this story. And I'm just going to give you my, my thoughts on it as, as best I can over this and, and probably the next, the next episode. So the Dunwich Horror was published in Weird Tales in April of 1929. It was written in September of 1928. Um, and, you know, it's this is a very fruitful time in Lovecraft's career, although he's going to publish... There's only seven stories that he published under his name after the Dunwich Horror, and they'd be over like a six-year period, a six- or seven-year period. And a lot of those stories were published in the early 1930s or around this period. So I would say that period from like 1926 to... 32 or so is the most productive for him. Um, and this is like at the center of that time period. Um, it's coming not long after he wrote 
a dream quest of unknown Kadath, uh I mean the case of Charles Dexter Ward not long after writing um, uh, the color of space literally this is a no this was written about a year after the color of space so this is this is a, a, a year later but still it's in the broad time period where he's being very very productive and has lots of great ideas I think if you go back to my letters episodes on the letters I talk about when he mentions writing um, writing the Dunwich Horror. And maybe that would have been a better approach. I don't know. In hindsight, maybe I should have been interspersing the letters with these stories so, you know, we don't have to kind of reference back and try to strain our memory to remember these things. But uh, anyways, uh, maybe for the last time I'll think about it. It'll just complicate things a little bit. Complicating my, my reading and research and, and recording schedule. So, uh, yeah, um, what I like about this story, I think, I think it works as sort of a parallel to the, the Shadow over Innsmouth. Um, here we have in Dunwich and Innsmouth, two towns that weren't explored before, you know, and unlike Arkham or Providence, we haven't spent time in these towns. They're in Lovecraft's universe, but they're marginalized and we only visit them the one time uh, in, in their respective stories. And there's a lot in common. They're shunned. They're forgotten. There's weird religious traditions going on there. There's sort of elite families that are into weird stuff, uh, corrupt traditions, and they're into the, the elder god stuff and the, the elder one, the elder gods and all that. So they're into that magic stuff. But they're very different towns, right? Innsmouth is young. Innsmouth is the, the youngest of the cities. Kinsport. Old, 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 right? Uh, Salem, Providence, Arkham are, are more cities of the 18th century. Innsmouth is really a city of the 19th century, right? It's much more, it's like an industrial city. It actually has industries working. I'm not sure, I don't remember when exactly it was founded. Probably was founded in the 18th century if you look at the text. But it really is a city of the 19th century, right? It's it's a city. It's got like the brick buildings and the decaying factory districts and the waterfronts and all that. And it and it was of a different era, right? It's of the age of of empire, uh, of kind of global empires. While Providence, while Providence and Arkham are cities more of 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 the Anglo-American world, right? Now, where does Dunwich fit into this? Dunwich is an old town, but it's it's not connected to sea. It's completely isolated kind of geographically, more so the Innsmouth. So shunning it's uh, functionally a little bit different, but it's, it's also got a history. Like on many of these towns, it has a history that goes back to like the witch hunt days and stuff like that. But it's, it's backcountry. Right. And we don't we spend some time with the backcountry folk like we go back to stories like uh, the what's the story where the guy meets the crazy guy in the asylum who was body switching uh, beyond the wall sleep. That story, you know, we've seen the backwood before and we've seen Lovecraft's view of it. And th those kind of racial ideas about the backcountries reappear in the Dunwich Horror, maybe not as odiously and in, in, in such an upfront matter, but they're there. Um, but this is a town that's isolated. It's forgotten. It's a forgotten town. That's what I want to get to. Like Innsmouth, Dunwich is a forgotten town. Um, but it's forgotten in a different way. Innsmouth is like that post-industrial town. It's like Detroit. Innsmouth is more like Detroit. 
and Dunwich is more like I don't know some village in flyover country or something that's that's just been passed over. It's it's the kind of town that the, the bypass was built and the exit ramp kind of came into the next town instead. And so this town just becomes a, a decadent has-been community, right? Where there's still people that have some interaction with the rest of the world, but it gets more and more weird as it gets more and more isolated. And this is very much Lovecraft's theme in a lot of his works is kind of we, we ignore this, this section of society at our own peril. Right. It's it's kind of a it's there in the color of space to a degree, um, you know, that there is some danger in these these backwards areas. But the color of space is set kind of in the realm of Arkham. It's just a nearby farming outskirt, really. This is a whole community that's been just passed over um, and passed over for a variety of reasons. Certainly economic is implied here. Um, but also because they're into weird stuff. But that seems to be connected, right? You you isolate people, you, you break them away, you put them on the marchland, you put them on the frontier, and they're going to do what they do. But they're going to do what people in frontier areas are going to do and experiment. They're not controlled by the metropole. You know, They're not being tied in by the metropole, and they can kind of go off and do and explore and experiment. And in doing so, they, they become different. And they think a little bit differently, right? But it doesn't mean they're not dangerous or powerful, you know, or threatening. And and of course, Lovecraft kind of has a there's a there's a danger to these groups, right? But I think that danger exists. It's a danger to the system. I, I think as long as it's like it's like Ebenezer Scrooge being taken to uh, to see the you know the ghost of christmas present right he takes him around london and then at the end of the the time with him says like look under my robe there's ignorance and want and if you forget about them you know you're in big trouble they're, they're going to be there i can cover up you can try to ignore this town but it's going to be there right it's it's like done which is like ignorance and want you know personified uh, in a, a town in this frontier of of, Ma of just massachusetts right but there's millions of dunwiches all around the world, right? Thousands in, in America, probably like all these places that, that the liberals on the coast, you know, when they, when they see the election results, they're like, why do these people vote for Trump or, or, or whatever? And, and it's, you know, that's a danger they pose, right? Political, they're, they have political power, right? That's one weapon they still have is their vote. That was kind of a Michael Moore's point about, about it too. So anyways, I, that's kind of my broad perspective on looking at towns like Dunwich and, and Innsmouth too. So I'll be uh, revisiting some of these scenes with Innsmouth. Now, now, like the color of space, the Dunwich horror begins with an investigation of the setting, right? So um, it also takes us a while to kind of get into the story as with uh, the color of space. We, I think we, we get a little bit quicker here because the story is Dunwich. It is the, the, about, about the fate of Dunwich. So we are introduced to Dunwich right away. So that kind of forces us to get into the story without too much delay. So how is this place described? Well, we start out getting this quote from this scholar, Charles Lamb, which is another night fierce. This was originally published in 1821. So this kind of continues Lovecraft's tradition of taking epigraphs from real texts that, that thematically connect to, to some what he's writing about. And this one really is a doozy. This is, this is a great one. I, he loves these 
works that kind of seem to hint that at like traditions that kind of exist in the underbelly of of society or the margins of society, right? Um, right. Like, listen to this. They, but they were here before. He's speaking of um, gorgons, hydras, and chimeras. I'll just read it from the beginning. Gorgons, hydras, and chimeras. Dire stories of Solano and the harpies may reproduce themselves in the brain of superstition, but they were there before. And quote. So he's I'm almost talking about like the collective subconscious, the Jungian kind of collective subconscious, a century before Jung talked about it, right? Quote, there are transcripts, types, the archetypes are in us and eternal. How well should the recital of that which we know in the waking sense to be false come to affect us at all? It is that we naturally conceive terror from such objects, considering their capacity of being able to inflict upon us bodily injury. Oh, least of all, these terrors are of old standing. They date beyond body. Or without the body, they would have been the same. And there's a little bit more on this, but the, the point's clear. This is kind of his, his cosmic horror um, shtick, which he's, you know, really, really good at by this point. Um, but he's kind of getting almost to a psychological, uh, you know, in proto-humans or, you know, early human communities and hunter-gatherer times, Neolithic, whenever, before things were written down, before these stories were written down, they existed. And, and there's probably truth to that. I mean, it's when you look at some of the earliest art, right? You start to see these kind of creatures in, in early Mesopotamian art, right? Not in the, the Paleolithic art, the Paleolithic art, though, which is interesting. There you see animals, some humans, not many, but you're not, you don't get the, alien, the, the human, not alien, not alien, but human uh, animal hybrid kind of creatures, mostly in, I think, you start getting it after Mesopotamia, or maybe in some Neolithic art, um, but not so much in the Paleolithic, except one piece I'm aware of that, that does that. But it's, it's pretty rare. But anyways, this is another kind of article that's worth checking out, which is another Night Fears. If, uh, you know, that, that's a real project is like to, to dig up Lovecraft's library, right? Not just his letters, not just his, the stuff he wrote, but the stuff that informed him, right? Like things like Murray's The Witch Cult in Europe. So, um... Anyways, Dunwich itself, um, it's it's like the backcountry of the Miskatonic. So it's not it's not like the color space is like literally like the outskirts of of Arkham. Uh, Dunwich is is on the Miskatonic, but it's down ways, right? It's significantly far. It's like you got to drive in to get there. So it's it's kind of out there and it's kind of isolated. But I guess Miskatonic or Boston is kind of the these are the places people go. To escape it's like they're not you know they're they're more in that eastern massachusetts kind of world than i guess like an albany world or something um but it's deserted it's there's people there but it's constantly talked about as deserted and even like physically there's desertion there's like in terms of like the landscape and the flora and the fauna there's desertion there too which at one point i'm like is this like the color of space it reminds me of the color of space he says um quote it can't be because it's it's a different place but maybe something like it happened i don't know quote old other traditions tell of foul orders order odors near the hill crowning circles of stone pillars and of rushing airy presences to be heard faintly at certain hours from stated points at the bottom of the great ravines while still others try to explain the devil's hop yard a bleak blasted hillside where no trees shrub 
or grass blade will grow, end quote. Which is is how the aftermath, that's the blasted heath, right? And even the term blasted is used again. So it's not the same location as the Colorado space, but it's, it's there's a connection, it seems, in, in them. Um, so it's deserted. It's easily missed. The signs are decaying. In fact, later on, after the Dunwich Horror itself, the signs literally get taken down. So we're back to the theme of forgetting. People work pretty actively to forget. Uh, quote, in our sensible age, since the Dunwich Horror of 1928 was hushed up by those who had the towns and the world's welfare at heart, people shun it without knowing exactly why. Um, like the shunned house, like uh, the, the blasted heath and the colored space, People just know to stay away. But the most important thing to talk about when we look at the description of Dunwich is the racial stuff. Um, you know, it's actually, I feel like it's been a while since I talked really directly about the racial stuff. I mean, it shows up a little bit in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but there it's special because it's kind of like they're the working class are presented as a sort of a as a victim almost, not not a perpetuator of these evil traditions. Uh, but we're here we're right back to the old theme of the underclass, of the marginalized, of the racial others. And remember in the days, days of eugenics, right, um, backcountry folk who were seen as like tri-racial isolates or somehow miscegenated, mixed blood, uh, inbred, were seen as racially others. They, you know, anyone who, like in Lovecraft's mind, pretty much anyone who's not Anglo, or Teutonic, in a broader sense, is is a racial other. Um, but eugenics laws and eugenics policies at the time reflected these same um, attitudes. And here they are. Quote, perhaps one reason why Dunwich is shunned, he says. So perhaps one reason is that the natives are now repellently decadent, having gone far along that path of regression so common in many New England backwaters. They have come to form a race by themselves, with the well-defined mental and physical stigmata of degeneracy and inbreeding. The average of their intelligence is woefully low, while their annals reek of overt viciousness and half-hidden murders, incest, and deeds of almost unnameable violence and perversity. So a couple of things here. One is they are clearly presented as a racial other. Second, they're presented as, as I guess, in decline. But third, they're presented as this decline is associated with their, their curiosity in in weird stuff, right? Let's just call it generally weird stuff, like murders, incest, and, quote, deeds of unnameable violence and perversity. You know, Lovecraft will sometimes use these euphemisms for basically these people are into, they're like reading the Necronomicon and doing stuff that they shouldn't do, right? Or they're into magic. And our main character in the story, or, or I guess our, our the one who kind of initiates things in the story, Wizard Watley, old man Watley, is one of these guys, right? He's someone who's racially degenerate, backwater types, but, you know, into murder, into incest, and into, you know, Yogg's the Thoth and trying to raise Yogg's the Thoth. I mean, spoiler alert, that's, that's what ultimately is after, right? That's what ultimately is going on. We're told pretty early on that that seems to be his goal. Um, now, we do have class in Dunwich, which is kind of an interesting addition. We're going to get this in Innsmouth, too. So these are forgotten towns. They're flyover towns they're, or they're, they're just declining waterfront communities. But they still have their own kind of dynamics and their, their class dynamics there. And, you know, even within families, 
two, the two major families we run into here, the bishops and the Watleys, both have their degenerate and their non-degenerate lines. So there's like the line that that's kind of tied to Dunwich. I mean, they're poorer, they're, and they're the ones into dangerous stuff. And then you have the line that's the non-degenerate line who send their kids off to Harvard or Miskatonic University, right? Quote, some of the Watleys and bishops still send their eldest sons to Harvard and Miskatonic, though the sons seldom return to the moldering gambler roofs under which they and their ancestors were born. Too ashamed, too horrified, too disgusted to, to return to their, their homes. Um, so there is this class dynamic there. and It seems that one line is, is slightly better off, but there's not much future for them there. You can imagine, I guess, some of these bishop scions going on to have distinguished careers elsewhere but they they have to kind of erase their connection to dunwich they it's like they have to kind of essentially their form of passing they have to pass as upright new englanders not not dunwich degenerates um so there's some history here uh we get uh, 18th century uh, so this is the town kind of of the 18th century it seems um the a reverend comes to the congregational church, congre congregational church, sorry, at Dunwich, and preached a service about witches and about evils, right? So this, the way this is presented by Lovecraft, he's just recording how this preacher, this reverend, told, gave this sermon long ago. But the context is, is missing. The context seems to be he, and of course you wouldn't know as a the reader, maybe the narrator just had access to the, the, the sermon, the recording of the sermon, not as context, not what was in his mind as he wrote it. But what's on his mind seems to be like, these people are all into witchcraft and I got to warn them not to do it. Right? Because the sermon is basically, don't touch the stuff. Now, I've gone to church many times. I've, you know, heard many sermons, but never have has the sermon told me not to play around with Azabel and Burial of Beelzebub and Belial. I guess I'm from a more liberal church. Now, anyways, after he gives this sermon, he disappears. He's killed, right? And and that, but somehow the the, the printing of the speech maintained. Quote, quote. Lovecraft says, quote, noises in the hills continue to be reported from year to year and still form a puzzle to geologists and physiographers. Um, so, it's old, and it's weird, and it's been old and weird. Well, this has been weird for a long time. We even get the suggestion that there's kind of an Indian burial, burial ground here on Sentinel Hill, which, of course, is a major location in the, in the story's climax. Quote, deposits of skulls and bones found within these circles and around the sizable table-like rock at Sentinel Hill sustain the popular belief that these such spots were once the burial place of the Puktumkets. Although, or even though many ethnologers disregarding the absurd improbability of such a theory persist on believing the remains Caucasian. So we don't really know. It could go either way, I suppose. But, um, you know, why not throw in an Indian burial ground on top of this weird place? So, so what kind of oddities are taking place in, in Dunwich? Well, this is kind of revealed in Chapter 2. I should say there's this book has or this... This story has 10 chapters. Um, chapter one is just the setting, the racial, uh, geographical, kind of cultural setting, some of the history of Dunwich. Chapter two introduces us to uh, Wizard Watley and his family, and they're going to be the main protagonists of, of 
the story essentially. Although they're kind of gone by the middle, but but at least a couple Watleys remain to 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 be the horror, right? Uh, we'll get into all that. Uh, but if you read the story, you know where it goes. One really cool thing about the story is how Dunwich uses these old holidays. It's another thing Lovecraft likes to do in some of his later works. He does it a lot to a really great effect in uh, Dreams of the Witch House. We're pulling up these old kind of early Christian or even pagan holidays that still get celebrated, right? It's like like Christmas, Easter are the holidays that sort of made it into kind of mainstream American culture. But there's all these other Christian holidays that are floating around that, that just never became the date, the holidays. Um, so he was born, for instance, on Candlemas, the, the birth date of Wilbur Watley. Uh, now, of course, there's twins here. The second twin is the Dunwich Horror itself, um, but Wilbur Watley is the one that could come out and, and interact with the world because he looked more human. Um, but he was born 5 a.m. on Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1913. Uh, so he's only, when the Dunwich Horror happens, he's only only 15 years old, um, but already a grown man and, and intellectual by that point. So it's Candlemas. So Candlemas is the feast for the presentation of Jesus at the temple. Um, so this is a, kind of a minor Christian holiday, but I think at some points it was, it, it was celebrated, you know, maybe. I think we kind of, we sort of need a holiday in February. That's not like, I guess we got uh, Valentine's Day, right? President's Day. But it could be kind of like a Halloween in February kind of holiday. Maybe we need something like that. Revive it. So we're told of uh, uh, some more of the Watleys, right? Lavinia is maybe the most, uh, one of the more important ones. Um, she's the mother of Wilbur Watley, who's just been born. And she's kind of she's kind of an opaque character. We don't see her too much. She spends a lot of it inside, uh, in the house, and she's it's kind of all weird because there's a suggestion of incest going on there. And certainly, that's the rumors because there's old man Watley and Lavinia, and there's like no real clear father. Although, old wizard Watley will later talk about his the father and kind of the father in the third person. But she's kind of the one of the more normal people in the family. She seems to have been coerced into this whole thing of giving birth to a weird monster. <laughs> um, quote, isolated among strange influences, Lavinia was fond of wild and grandiose daydreams and singular occupations. Nor was her leisure much taken up by the household cares in a home from which all standards of order and cleanliness have long since disappeared. Um, I don't know. I read that, that there's kind of... In a normal circumstance, she did kind of cling a little bit to domesticity, but but uh, she's not able to anymore. Her family's so weird, they just kind of took her down this path. So I, I, I kind of feel sorry for Lavinia. Um, you know, I actually like the Watleys. I, I think even though they're the villains of the story, they're, you know, they get to the heart of, I think, what Lovecraft's trying to say about class in 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 America and class globally even, right? Because, you know, these people would be brothers and sisters in a way with the mulatto cultists in New Orleans or the degenerate Eskimos in that, that they're discussed in the call of Cthulhu. You know, they might be at home even with the Shoggoths in, in, a, in, a, in a strange way. 
um, the people of Red Hook. These they they have something in common that they're they're marginalized, they're poor, they're forgotten, ignored, um, yet have something. They they have a means to to make themselves known, right? And I think that's a hard thing. Like the motive, that's the hard thing about the story is the motive of Watley, right? The motive of of Castro is given explicitly, right? That Cthulhu, the Cthulhu cult, promises worldly freedom. I've talked about that in the Call of Cthulhu review I gave. That Cthulhu himself promises earthly freedom, not the eternal life, but yeah, not some afterlife, but something you've been denied here, and that's freedom on this planet. Um, and yeah, the price you pay is your soul, maybe, but that's, you know, in Lovecraft's mind, that doesn't even exist anyways, right? But it's, a, it's, a, it's almost like a fair deal for the people who have been so marginalized. Now, in contrast, in Innsmouth, they're given the promise of eternal life, right? At least not, if not for them, for their descendants. And, but they're also this hint of like, you're getting something that's the real, that the, the mainstream world isn't offering you, right? Something your churches don't offer, something the capitalist world doesn't offer, something those people in Boston and Arkham and Providence don't understand and aren't offering you, right? The whole world has forgotten you, right? But you can make them to remember, right? You can vote for Trump. You can raise Yogg-Sothoth child, you know, or you can call up Cthulhu, whatever, but you'll be remembered then, right? So I, I think this is such a powerful kind of element of this story. Um, so now Wilbur, not Wilbur, Wilbur, uh, um, old, old man Watley, Wizard Watley, he's got a bit of a big mouth and that helps you know, that allows Lovecraft to plant some seeds and, and foreshadow some things, which works well. You know, he seems to be, for someone who seems to be kind of brilliant and and in touch with all this stuff, you know, he's kind of got a big mouth here. He says, I don't care what the folks think of Lavinia's boy look like his pa. He wouldn't look like nothing you expect. You need to think the only folks is the folks hereabouts. Lavinia's read some and has seen some things the most of you only tell about. I calculate her man is as good a husband as you can find this side of Allensbury. And if you know as much about the hills as I do, you wouldn't ask no better church wedding nor hearing. Let me tell you something. Someday you folks will hear the child of Lavinia's a calling his father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. And that's ultimately what happens, right? And that was father being Yogg-Sothoth. Um, but so it, old man Watley must have seen some kind of impression of Yogg-Sothoth if he's able to compare his, I guess, grandson's features with him. Um, so that kind of thing is suggested a few times, actually. Um, so now these other families in that are sort of connecting to like the story you got like people from the the non-degenerate Watley line like the non-problematic like the more respectable like Z Zechariah Watley he's sort of in the margin of the story he becomes more important a little bit later on too um you know he's kind of there but he's not considered like the same it's not like the weird Watley family and you have the Bishop family too which also has its um weird 
um, size, right? The degenerate line. But the one mi- mi- bishop's particularly important, Mammy Bishop, who is not, I guess, not married, but um, but Earl Sawyer is another kind of local working class person, and his common law wife is Mammy Bishop. But the fact that it's a common law wife, I think, is just even, you know. In Dunwich, there's just not the legal institutions, right? So marriages are more informal, I guess. Um, so anyways, they, we got a couple hints here about something else is going on in with this birth of, of Wilbur. Because Wilbur's born, and pretty soon it's, it's figured out he's kind of weird. He grows fast. He starts talking too fast. But the other weird thing is the Watley start to buy cattle, you know, in large amounts um quote the marked beginning of in a course of cattle buying on the small part on the part of the small wilbur family which ended only in 1828 so for 15 years they're buying a lot of cattle right it's it's kind of we see this before in um you know lovecraft stories i think what well, didn't Kerwin buy a bunch of meat and stuff have weird buying habits that kind of pique the interest of the Local people, you have um, in the Whisper in Darkness the dogs, right? The guy going to the pound every day to get new dogs because he's being killed by the Migos. That's a, that's a wonderful little bit. But here, these cows, they keep buying these cows to feed the other son, the twin brother of Wilbur Watley, who's this huge monster. And then they're, of course, always building to the house, right? Because it gets getting bigger. So they have to constantly be remodeling and making the house bigger and bigger and as they feed him, he gets he kind of fills up that space. You know, it's kind of wonderful, but there's also like like violence against animals because it seems he's not eating the, the cows; he's like drinking their blood because they're also finding nearby animals just like drained of their blood and dead. So but this is how they're feeding that brother. But at the same time of this, you know, Wilbur is developing very swiftly. You know, talking at one, walking, and having a musculature that's that's abnormal. In fact, it's so abnormal that people kind of, you know, begin to pay attention to this. Um, and very soon, this this Wilbur Watley gets involved in this the rituals and traditions that he's going to be forced to carry on um, after Old Man Watley dies. The first sign of this is on Halloween, he performs some ritual on Sentinel Hill. And we're already told Sentinel Hill is where the son will announce the name of his father. But, uh, you know, the, there's a fire that starts on, Christ, on, on Halloween, sorry. And Silas Bishop, of the undecayed bishops, we're always reminded if they're from the decayed line or undecayed line. Uh, quote, mentioned having seen the boy running steadily up the hill ahead of his mother about an hour before the blaze was remarked. So they started this fire as some part of some ritual that they were engaged in. Um, and anyways, Wilbur starts talking, but he doesn't talk like a child. Like he's, he starts talking in fully formed sentences and stuff. It's really weird. Um, there's kind of almost non-human speech involved or, or somehow he's able to talk with organs that aren't fully human, right? It, it's kind of like a... You know, it's an issue in science fiction, right, where they use universal challenge translators to get everyone to speak. But the idea that we could even speak an alien's language is kind of bizarre because they would be physiologically so different, right? You know, an alien species would be physiologically so different. We wouldn't even share, like, the same vocal cords and things, right? And 
you know, but for science fiction TV, they, they, they make it easier and say, okay, you know, either universal translator or you can, you can translate this stuff and speak the other language. Like humans are always speaking Klingon or whatever at various moments in that show. Lovecraft here is smart enough to kind of give Wilbur Watley, this boy, a language that's that's ex- that's not fully human, right? He speaks English, but he speaks it through organs that aren't human. That's really it's really interesting, and it's so weird that people just are like staying away from this boy and fearing him as they fear the town of Dunwich itself. So I'm debating whether to move on with the story. Um, I mean, I'm not even halfway through the story, but I think I've been going on for a while here. Um, So, yeah, I think I will still finish up in the next episode, but I won't have to go through all the stuff I went through as an introduction. So it will will be able to go a little quicker. And this whole second half of the story is, I don't want to say action, but it's, it's a lot of it is the details of the Dunwich War itself and a little bit less interesting to talk about. Um, more interesting to talk about is like the setting, the people, the traditions, the whippoorwills. I didn't even get to the whippoorwills. There's whippoorwills all over Dunwich and there's psychopomps, of course, um, which is a fun aspect of the story, too. There's just like this overhanging of death in, in, the, in the town, right, which adds to why people shun it, I guess. But yeah, I think I'm going to pick up with chapter three next time and do three through ten, finish up the story in the next episode. If I, if I can't, I'll, I'll just extend it over to another extra episode. That won't hurt anyone. So anyways, I think I, I've kind of set up my overall interest in the Dunwich Horror for you. So uh, please let me know what you think of all that, uh, this overall thesis. Give me your thoughts, and I will... Um, like to engage with you on that. I, I hope this is a story that, that, that you find interesting to talk about. So anyways, uh, you haven't seen The Last of Me. I'll be back next time. Uh, in the meantime, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. See you later. Yeah.